Well, good evening, everybody. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Galatians chapter 6. Tonight we'll be finishing up this book. So we've been in this book since the beginning of the year, and tonight will be the end of it. So we'll be picking it up in verse 11. And so as you're turning there, I just want to just very briefly set up the context behind this letter and a little bit of where we've been the last couple of weeks. So this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, written to the believers in the region of Galatia. And the first several chapters of this book, he's really unpacking what is the gospel. And he's helping them see that there has been a false gospel that has infiltrated the church. And re-emphasizing how there is only one true gospel. And so we've talked a lot about how we are saved by grace alone, not by works, and it's through faith alone, also not by works. Like, our works, our own merit does not do anything for our salvation. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. And one of the main areas of contention within this region was around the issue of circumcision. There was the Judaizers who were trying to add to what it meant or what was necessary to be saved. And they were arguing that circumcision was necessary to be saved. But Paul was rebuking that by saying that it's faith alone has nothing to do with the law. And so the first several chapters of Galatians kind of unpacks the the theological realities of this. And then the last couple chapters focus a little bit more on the application. Like, what does it mean as believers, as those who have been saved, to live as Christians? And so we talked a little bit about living, living out the fruit of the Spirit and that fruit that we should be producing as believers. And then last week, we kind of see a part where Paul's calling the believers to be able to bear one another's burdens. And Jared touched on three things that we as believers should be modeling, that being humility, compassion, and faithfulness. That those three things should be markers of us as believers. For those of us who have been purchased, like we've been, we were slaves to sin, now because of what Jesus has done for us, we are now children of God, bought by the blood of Jesus. And so tonight's kind of the the closing remarks by the Apostle Paul to this group of believers. And my goal for tonight is, I think, pretty simple, but I just want to just, just say it's going to be a little bit on the heavier side. So my goal is for us to be humbled by our own sin, and that with that, we will cling to Christ and his cross. That's my goal for us tonight. So I've titled this, Glorying in the Cross. The cross being the only thing we can or should boast in or find. Like That's our purpose. We want to glory in the cross. So let's read now Galatians 6, starting in verse 11 through the end. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have 
to have you circumcised, that they may boast in, in your flesh. But, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So this is not one of Paul's longer letters. Verse 11, he's talking about with what large letters I am writing to you. I think this is not necessarily referring to the length of this letter, although it certainly could have been, I suppose, more brief than it was. There are shorter epistles in the Bible than this one. But this is likely referring to just the amount of space that he was taking up on the page or the scroll. Like the letters were just physically big. And so this could have been because of an ailment, like maybe Paul had injured his hand at some point, and so maybe this was just the best he could do. Or maybe it was because of a bad eyesight, and that was also the best he could do. I think maybe a, a better explanation when he's talking about the large letters here is just that throughout this letter, he's just been emphatic about what he's writing. You know, thinking about like writing in all caps, for example. Like you're getting a point across by doing that. And I think that's kind of what he's getting at here, although obviously in our, our printed versions, we don't actually get to see exactly what that, that looks like. But all throughout this letter, Paul has been coming back to the main gospel, like the gospel being his main message, the one true gospel. And he's also done a lot of rebuking that of the false teaching. So this has definitely been one of the, one of the letters of Paul, this also being likely his first, but even just looking at the other ones he would later write, this is definitely one of the ones where he's strongest in rebuking false teaching and calling out what is false. And so I think that also kind of goes to support that he really is just trying to emphasize the point with the large letters by which he wrote this letter. Verse 12, we see a reference here to the Judaizers, those who have been saying that circumcision is necessary for these believing Gentiles, that they can't be saved by their faith alone, but the work of circumcision is also necessary. Again, this is something that we've been talking about a lot throughout the course of this letter, that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works, not by circumcision. And then verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Here Paul's kind of pointing out the hypocrisy of these Judaizers, that even they cannot keep the whole law. Not even a Jew who knew the law and revered the law could not keep the whole law. They were seeking to boast in areas where they were superior that's part of why I think they come back over and over again to this area of circumcision. There's just kind of that, that natural tendency in them to think that they were better than the Gentiles because they were circumcised. 
And I think that what Paul's trying to get at here is they were really looking down on these people. Like they knew the letter of the law, right? The, the Old Testament, that they, they were keeping it better, but they were very hypocritical because they could not keep the whole law. Their salvation, if they truly were saved, was not at all based on how well they kept that law. And so I think for us, it's important to recognize that we also can be very hypocritical. How easy is it for us to point at sins like maybe gluttony or materialism, right? If you see it in someone else, to be able to point that out. But if that's not something you struggle with, it's easy for you to think that maybe you're better than that person. I think another example, right? Like if you, if you really struggle with sexual sin, instead of recognizing what that is for what it is, you may choose to downplay it or to justify it. There's a lot of different ways I think we can be hypocritical when it comes to our view of sin and comparing our own sin compared to the sins of those around us that we see. Like another example, right, just even a little bit more specific, like homosexuality or, or transgenderism. Those are a couple of, of big issues we're seeing in our culture today. If you've never been tempted to struggle with any of those particular issues, it's easy to look down upon people who do or to maybe have made their lifestyle around those. I think it's easy to even try to justify those feelings because of how much of a hot-button issue it is and that maybe you're just trying to stand for the truth. That's part of how I think you can kind of convince yourself and then try to justify why you're looking down upon some of these people. But I just I think what I want us to recognize is that standing for the truth does not, does not mean you're looking down on people who have different sin patterns than you. And the other thing I want to just kind of explain is we're not trying, like tonight, my goal is for us to to help us see our own sin and where we fall short. I'm not trying to downplay sin at all as we, as we think about sin in others. But I think we also need to be really introspective and recognize where we, are, we ourselves fall short. Being loving and not looking down at someone for their sin is not the same thing as compromising. Like we 100% stand on God's word for our definitions of marriage and sexuality. We 100% affirm that homosexuality and transgenderism are sin. But we must be able to balance these convictions with love and grace when we encounter those who struggle with them. I think it's important for us to recognize that there is grace, mercy, and forgiveness available to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus and chooses to surrender their lives and their desires to him. I think part of where this grace in us should come from is recognizing, again, where we fall short. I think sexual sin in general is something that I don't know if it's possible to not struggle with it, at least to some small degree. I think it's something we all struggle with to one degree or another. And God doesn't view sin in a hierarchical sense. I don't know if that's really a word, but there's no hierarchy of sin. We like to try to convince ourselves 
that there is. Like these sins are less bad than those ones. Typically the ones we commit are, are definitely less significant than the ones that other people commit. It's typically how we try to rationalize it in our own heads. Any sin, no matter how small in our eyes, is detestable to God and deserving of his wrath. I know for me, when I first started our, our guys' Bible study many, many years ago now, that was one of my purposes and hopes behind starting that Bible study was for it to be a safe place for us to deal with sexual sin and pornography. Like That was something that I know I was struggling with pretty significantly just before coming to SALT and still struggled with off and on even after that. But I knew how important it was for us to have a community where we could be open about that. And that especially with this demographic, it is a serious sin, right? Like a lot of people our age do struggle with that. And I even recognize that we often talk about it as a sin that that guys struggle with. But the statistics also show that there's somewhere around a third of women who also watch pornography from time to time. And so I don't want to isolate this particular issue too much, but as I was just kind of thinking about starting that Bible study, I recognized just how much it's so important for us to have accountability to not only have a place where we come together and can be vulnerable with one another, with where we fall short, but also like actually having it lead to action. Like it wasn't just enough for us to be able to share, oh, this is our common sins that we have. But how do we go beyond that? Because part of the purpose of accountability is not that we just sit there, but how do we actually seek to put these sins to death? And quite frankly, when it comes to the issue of pornography, it's something that I wish that the, the church as a whole would talk about more. It's so prevalent, specifically in this particular age demographic. I think there's relatability for sure for us in having a group like a Bible study when we share some of these common struggles. But it's so important for us to recognize that the goal isn't just to be vulnerable. The goal is how do we work together? How do we encourage one another to actually put these sins to death? We can't try to justify it and say, oh, God doesn't actually expect us to be free from these sins or saying it's too hard or too addicting. Going back to Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's freedom available to us in Christ. There's no such thing as a sin too powerful for us to overcome in Christ. So let's not tolerate sin in our lives, whatever it is. It could be sexual sin, it could be another type of sin, right? It could be greed, materialism. Whatever those idols that we have are, we can't be tolerant of them. Leviticus 11, verse 45 says, You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Hebrews 12, verse 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. I think those two verses just kind of highlight the importance of holy living. 
and for our goal not to be okay with some of our sins, but to be completely rid of them. May we see the sin for the seriousness with which it is. I know a couple weeks ago, John used the analogy of it being like a lion. I want us to remember that, that image. Our sin isn't something that we want to just train or to make look pretty, right? We want to seek to put it to death, knowing that it can turn on us and kill us. Like, sin ultimately does lead to death. We don't want to try to just tame it. We want to recognize it for what it really is. I kind of wanted to, to shift this conversation a little bit, too, when, and just thinking about sin in others, right? When we recognize sin in a brother or a sister. And I just want to encourage us that it's important for us to not just be silent. And what I mean by that is we want to confront sin when we see it. We don't want to be tolerant in, of sin in others or ourselves. But as I say that, I also want to just recognize that it's important for us to also not keep a list of the sins of others. We don't want to just smother them or bury them in all this list of sins that we've seen them commit over the weeks or years, right? But I think that the more that we are able to call each other out on their sin when we see it, I think there's a lot of fruit that comes from that and that accountability that we develop as a community. But I also recognize that this is one area I really wish that we did more of within the church. Again, I just know that over the years of just being here at SALT, there's been several times where I had a friend or two just pull me aside and would call me out on something. And obviously, it's never fun in the moment to be you know, having your sin brought into the light like that. But it's so freeing at the same time. Like There's, there's freedom in that that comes from that. Like, I think if I, if I knew that my friends recognized the sin but didn't want to say anything, like, that would kind of hurt. Like, we want to take sin seriously. And we recognize that there is a lot of fruit and good that comes from bringing it into the light. Sometimes we're just too blind to see it ourselves, which is why we need one another to hold us accountable and to grow. So my encouragement is maybe that we could be a better community at being able to call one another to repentance, that we wouldn't just dismiss sin in ourselves or in those around us. But as we do confront one another, we must do it graciously. I think another point, important, important, oh my gosh, I can't speak tonight. Another important thing to note the few times that people had come and confronted me with something, like they never made a big public thing about it, and I think that's really important. The purpose was never to make me look bad. The heart behind it was always to help me see so that I would repent. So there's definitely a lot of trust involved in that, and you can definitely feel the heart of those who are doing the confronting if they do it in that way. kind of coming back to where we are in our passage, I think the, the heart behind what I want us to see is that when we do judge people, when we do confront people with their sin, 
We're not doing it on the basis of our own righteousness. We're not being self-righteous when we do it. We're doing it genuinely out of a love for that person and a desire to see them submit to Jesus and finding true life in him. So we can be gracious and loving in the way that we confront sin in one another. Last thing I just wanted to say about this is, as I'm sure that we're aware, the world does not view sin the same way that we do. And so sometimes that means that we will confront people with their sin who, quite frankly, don't want to be confronted with that sin. And again, I want to emphasize that we need to be balancing the grace and truth aspects, like do it in a loving way, a way that you genuinely do care for the person. But I also think it's important for us to be okay with just the possibility of being called unloving or a bigot in the process. As long as we are doing it in a loving way, we need to recognize that the people who we are confronting won't always respond well. Our job is simply, in that case, to be a light, a beacon of the truth, as long as we are doing it in love. So I think this is an area where we just need to be examining our hearts. Do we actually want to put our own sin to death as we're calling out sin in our brothers and sisters? Is it out of a heart of love for that person? Are we genuinely seeking restoration and repentance for them? Hopefully it's not in any way to look down upon them, but hopefully to help build them up to help them become the man or the woman that God wants them to be. The only righteousness that we can stand on, again, this is a major theme of this entire epistle, is the righteousness of Christ. I think we need to make that clear all the time. Even as we're confronting someone else in their sin, we can do that in a non-self-righteous way because it's the righteousness of Christ in which we stand we also fall short. We don't have it all put together. I think this is abundantly clear in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's recognizing that he cannot boast in himself. What about ourselves is so amazing that we would be able to stand before a good, just judge and be righteous? There's nothing about ourselves that will make us righteous before God. I think this is a point we've been hitting over and over and over again throughout this, this letter but I just kind of want to reiterate it a little bit more. Our flesh only brings death. We read in Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Isaiah 64, verse 6, we have, we have all become like one who is unclean, 
and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the state of all of us before we come to Jesus. And just to help make sure that this point is even more clear, I'm just going to read this Charles Spurgeon quote, which I know I've shared here a couple of times over the years, but I think it just helps to get this even deeper When your heart is heavy, when you think you are the greatest of sinners, remember that you are a greater sinner than you think. Though your conscience has rated you very low, you may go even lower and still be in the right place. For to tell you the truth, you are as bad as bad can be. You are worse than your darkest thoughts have ever painted you. You are a wretch most undeserving and hell-deserving. Apart from sovereign grace, your case is helpless. If you were now in hell, you would have no cause to complain against the justice of God, for you deserve to be there. I just want the gravity of that to just sink in a little bit. That this should humble us, and just how far we all fall short. How undeserving every single one of us is of God's grace. As if that wasn't enough, I think the the picture of the cross should help emphasize it even more. When we think about what our sins actually deserve, we have the picture of Jesus on the cross. There, Jesus actually endured what each and every one of us deserve, not just for the three plus hours he was on the cross, but literally for all of eternity, that's what we deserve. Not just the physical pain that Jesus endured, but the mental and the spiritual as well. As he sat there enduring the full wrath of God. That's what our sins have earned us. There's nothing to boast about in our flesh. What do we have to boast about in ourselves? I'm hopeful that just kind of getting into this a little bit, that not only would we, would we be humbled, but it would help us to see the broken around us in a more loving and gracious way, that our desire for them to come to faith would be even greater. Over the summer, we're going to be going over a series call, or on truth and sexuality. We're going to be really digging into what does the Bible have to say about marriage, dating, sex, gender, a lot of these hot topic issues of today. And so I just kind of want to keep that in mind as we just are thinking about our own depravity. That when we're talking about these issues, that we recognize where we all fall short The world around us is very broken, but so are we. There's nothing to boast about in our flesh, but Paul would say he would boast in the cross. 
Paul knew exactly what he was saved from. He knew the kind of person he was before he came to faith in Jesus. He even describes himself as the worst of sinners. But he also knew where his salvation came from and that it was, it's available to all who will believe. And that is what he clung to. The thing the world would see as scandalous or something detestable, that was the very thing that Paul would boast in. The world sees the cross as a symbol of torture and death. But we who have been saved by what Jesus has done for us see it as a symbol of hope and life. Paul talked about in this letter how we cannot fulfill the law. He now talks about how circumcision means nothing. Essentially, our ability to follow the law means nothing. Our own righteousness means nothing. He outlines this well in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have counted the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. From the Jewish perspective, Paul appeared righteous. He outlines that in these verses. He appeared to be one who was obedient to the law, but he recognized that that was but rubbish. Think of it as filthy rags or a polluted garment, using the words of Isaiah. But he would boast in the cross. The cross is the thing that he would cling to. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. By faith alone. Paul would not boast in his own righteousness, but he would boast in whom his righteousness is found. Glorying in the cross is about is about having your faith in Jesus, boasting in him and his cross. I think it's through this understanding that we rightly can call other sinners to repent. When we recognize how far we have fallen short and how great God's grace is, we can share with those who do fall short that there is hope as we share with them the truth. We all were once a slave to sin, desperately lost and without hope. But Jesus has reached down and saved each of us, pulling us out of our own mess. If we just put our faith 
in Jesus. We have been crucified to the world. We read that in verse 14. We are not the people that we used to be. We are now living in opposition to the world that Satan essentially has control over in this life, in the system that he has. We live in opposition to that as we now live for the kingdom of God. And by believing in Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus has received our sins, and in turn we receive his righteousness as he has paid the price for our sins. Isaiah 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the offer for everyone who comes to Jesus, that our sins can be removed, that though they are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. There's no such thing as a sin that cannot be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. I think it's really interesting to think about just how Christianity compares to the other religions. That Christianity is truly the only religion where you can be saved and not be self-righteous. Our righteousness is not our own. Every other religion, to one degree or another, is a works-based religion. But for us, it's not what we have done, but it's what Christ has done for us. Because of the righteousness of Christ, we can be made new. And in this life, we are being sanctified, being made more and more like him. I think for the sake of time, I'm just going to reference this verse. But 1 John 1, verses 6 through 10, I think these verses just really highlight the importance for us to not deceive ourselves, recognizing that we do all sin, but there is forgiveness available if we will repent and confess that. Let's boast in the cross of Christ and put to death any notion of self-righteousness. Pray that this really would be a marker of our community, that we wouldn't pretend to have it all together, that we wouldn't pretend like we don't sin. Hopefully we're sinning less and less, that we're taking our sin seriously, seeking to put it to death, but we can be real about it. We don't have to pretend. It's not our righteousness. It's not our performance. It's the righteousness of Christ. Verse 16. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This is simply just a reference to the people of God that we receive peace, that we live a life with God and the blessings of Him. And this is a life that we experience now and will carry into eternity peace with God. And the mercy, where we used to be in a state of deserving God's wrath, that penalty has been paid. It's no longer owed to us anymore. 
Verse 17 highlights just how much, Christ, or how much Paul suffered for the sake of Christ. Just think of the testimony that that was to the hearers of this letter and the many other letters he would write later. He physically endured hardship and suffering for the name of Christ. And finally, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. God's grace alone is what sustains the believer. We must always depend on him and on his grace. Glorying in the cross. This is what we can boast in, is the cross of Christ. May we seek to bring him glory. Let's cling to Jesus and to his cross, the only place where we can be made righteous.